Hey, don't police shoot black people. Man, that's, I an, open. <laughs> that's an opening. I have not seen Lethal Weapon in a long time. Banter, banter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we're just going to have to roll through our cold open. Uh, we're straight to business time. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, we are just not wasting any time to talk about what this movie's about, huh? No. You, uh, you slid that in. That is not a line. Dustin off air said that this is more of a 90s movie than it is an 80s movie. And I think that line of dialogue right there is all you need to prove that. Right. I cannot believe they had a child say that to Danny Glover in this movie. <laughs> I think we need ice cream. I love Danny Glover's speaking to children voice. Yeah, his speaking to kids. Voice he's such is an old man. Incredible. Yeah. Which one of you is my daughter? Yeah. <laughs> Did you know he's like barely forty when they made this. Really? Yeah. yeah. He's like, ba- so I funny. think he's like forty-one or something. Yeah. It's the stash. The stash. Yeah. Of, yeah. The stash, stash makes you look older. Of wisdom and power. Yeah. Um, hello, so everybody, and welcome to the Good Trash Honor Cast. Dustin, <laughs> our very own Mel Gibson of the podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am not. You just said something off couth, not and what? you were talking about diarrhea last week. <laughs> You're 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 the rowdy one now, uh, but he loves the Jewish people. I, I do. <laughs> That's actually very true. <laughs> there, there, there's very little I have in common with Mel to Gibson, except for being old. Yeah, Dustin has never yelled at a cop during a DUI stop. That's that, that, I can that, confirm that has not happened. That has never happened. I would know. <laughs> I'm one of the three people he would have told probably. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the films you'll never discuss on Film Stays Course, and this week's film is Richard Donner's uh, film Lethal Weapon, starring Mel Gibson and uh, Danny, Danny Glover. Glover and um, not it. Joe Pesci, That's not Joe Pesci, not yet, and not Rene Russo, and not Jet Li, no, uh, or Chris Rock, or Chris Rock. Is Chris Rock in one of them? Lethal Weapon Four. Jackie Chan. Jackie no. Chan. Jackie Chan is not in one. Okay, no um, missed opportunity though. Anyway, we're going to talk about this Bruce movie Willis. now. <laughs> Bruce Willis almost in this movie. I am still Dustin, not almost Mel Gibson. in last week's movie too. And I am Arthur Gordon. Uh, I am Dalton Stewart, and actually, Bruce Willis almost had my chair on this show. Another, <laughs> another, another almost. Bruce he'll Willis do job. anything for a paycheck. He'll he'll do it. Um, and we're going to talk about this movie with spoilers. Um, but we're going to avoid spoilers for the first part of the show with a synopsis and uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and with. Uh, Expanding the syllabus, I about said spoiling the syllabus. I don't know what that was about, but that sounds like fun. And then we'll get down to business, and there'll be spoiler bets then. So you've been warned if you haven't seen the classic of the 80s, Lethal Weapon. With that, Arthur, let's hear a synopsis. He's a 50-year-old family man and homicide cop, and he just got partnered with a suicidal hotshot narcotics detective. Hilarity ensues as they track down Gary Busey. <laughs> that is what happens in this movie. All of that is. That's all true. <laughs> <laughs> you can't argue with Arthur's synopses because they're never wrong. No, they never are. Uh, well, with that, let's hear some thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Dalton, go. I don't know. I think Arthur's synopsis kind of tells you everything you need to know about this movie. I don't, it doesn't work. I, I don't understand how this became such an unlikely hit. I I said I hadn't seen it in a long time. It's only been about four years, if that. I And there's so much of it that I kind of forgotten. Uh, I think a lot of what I remember about Lethal Weapon is from the later movies. <laughs> Uh, I don't, which are better, I think. Yeah, maybe. I just this movie does not work for me, and I don't know if it's all the boy. Is it not cool to have this mentally unwell cop on the streets? I don't know if it's the Mel Gibson of it all, but something about it just does not work for me. Uh, I, I think it's fun in spots, like the, the action is competent enough. You know, Donner knows where to put the camera usually. Um, I, I think the the opening busts with that each of them has like that stuff's kind of cool. the first. I don't know, half hour of this movie's fine. It it just 
becomes a weird movie at some point, and it's kind of undiscernible to me where that happens. It's somewhere around, well, to, to not spoil anything, it's about the time the case comes home that this movie kind of goes off the rails for me. And that's usually the case yeah. with a lot of cop movies. When the case comes home, I'm pretty much checked out. Uh, I, I don't care, because uh, that's not real life. <laughs> I don't know. It's fine. You know, it feels like a rough draft of other Shane Black movies that he would write later. And that's, Arthur, you set off air that this feels so much like a blueprint of a movie. And I think that's maybe something that holds me back from liking it is knowing that Shane Black will do two more Buddy Cop Christmas movies, and both of them are better than this one. Um, your mileage is going to vary. You know, if you watch Lethal Weapon a lot as a kid, you're probably still going to like it. I watched it some as a kid. It doesn't really hold. Again, I remember the, the bomb on the toilet. That's what I remember about Lethal Weapon, because that, of course that's what I remember. That's funny. Uh, this movie thinks it's got jokes, but I don't know that there are a lot here, uh, which is weird, considering this movie franchise's reputation. You know, it is. I always think of it as an uh, action comedy franchise, and this first movie does lean much, much, much more action than anything else. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll really get into the meat of it as we go, but I, I think Dustin's... <clears throat> comment off air that i've already mentioned it really tells you a lot about lethal weapon it is an 80s movie and year only there is something very sort of 90s too cool for school about it and i think that hurts it more than it helps it all right thank you very much for that um so is this a real life or is this just fantasy arthur what do you say um there's a moment uh where um uh Mel Gibson does a uh, Three Stooges bit on some heroin dealers, and then either immediately before or immediately after, I don't recall, has a gun in his mouth. Uh, and that's kind of where this movie's at tonally. After. Um, I, I think it's before, actually. <laughs> exactly. Uh, also, like, <laughs> by, by the uh, real bullet. I know I was all like cool about, I was like, oh, it's so cool that Denzel got waterboarded for Safe House. It's not cool that Mel Gibson put a real loaded gun in his mouth on a movie set. I don't know if it's because we've been talking about Rust, Rust a lot yeah. lately, but Oof. holy shit, does that make me uncomfortable. This, uh, yeah, I was, I yeah, I was not, I was very uneasy watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I do realize that in 2021, uh, they would have filmed that shot of him putting the bullet in the, in the, in the barrel uh, uh, CGI wise. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been all digital. Certainly hope so. <laughs> um, uh, which uh, speaks to the something. Um, <laughs> it does speak to the something. I uh, I and, believe Mel Gibson wants to die. <laughs> when I watch this movie, I do believe it. Why did I leave Australia, mate? It's over. Um, this movie is, I, I think Dalton kind of hit the nail on the head. It, it just, it, it's so kind of uneven and off the rails at a point. And I, I think the thing for me is watching, I mean, I've seen it a few times. I watched it a few years ago as well. Um, And I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I'm like, oh, when's this moment going to happen? Oh, that's the sequel. Um, It yeah. does, they all just kind of run together. Um, I, I think there's a good dynamic between Gibson and um, Glover. Glover, Jesus. Um. I think they've got a good chemistry. And I mm. think they're fun. But this script feels not only the blueprint of a movie, but the blueprint of a genre. I mean, this defines the buddy cop movie for the next 
40 years. I, I still, yeah. yeah. I'm sure. I, I mean, I, wa- have, I haven't seen Red Notice starring Reynolds and Johnson, but yeah. I'm sure Reynolds and Johnson, sure yeah, yeah, have that banter. Uh, and, and so uh, it really does set the president. And watching it now, the script feels like such a parody of the genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are out blatant on the nose lines like he's suicidal he shouldn't be on the streets he's a loose cannon like it's in the text it's not in the earth it's not in the subtext it is right there on the nose like yep. so blatant over the the top that it feels like a satire or a parody of the genre and it's the kind of the first one and so there's something almost circular about that you know you think about iconic genre cinematic defining moments you know citizen kane uh, and, and how other movies have done what Citizen Kane does, but Citizen Kane still stands as as an icon. Mm-hmm. But Lethal Weapon, every other movie that's aped Lethal Weapon has somehow improved on Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Yes, like here's the foundation, and everybody else just built a better building on top of it. Yeah, it's not like when you watch uh, every movie that came out after, say, Jurassic Park, and you go, "Oof, yeah, oof." Even some of its own sequels. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's sort of the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can go back to that text and go. Wow, no wonder this works. Yeah. You go back to Lethal Weapon, you go, Ooh, Oof, this, this is it? This is sweaty. Yeah. Um, and, and so there are things about it I do like. I think that first act, outside of a few expository lines, is pretty solid. And I, I think most of that is just because of the, the banter back and forth. But the overemphasis and reliance on just how uh, much of a, a loose cannon Mel Gibson's character is, is, is such a bizarre time to spend that much energy on. Like, him putting the gun in his mouth is already pretty emphatic. That you do everything else on top of that is just kind of a little yeah. too much, I think. I, uh, th- jumping off the building is a fun moment, but it's also like, oh, get it. Then they have the argument in the empty building. We get it. Like For me, if you do the jumper and the argument in the building and just those, I feel like you can maybe get away with it, right? Mm-hmm. But doing the like the really super serious thinking about killing himself scene and then doing yeah, it's just too much. It's like yeah. what kind of movie am I watching? Yeah. Uh and, and so it feels really un- unpolished in those moments. And I, I I really did tune out the last half of this. I just stopped caring because to your, I mean it's irrelevant. It doesn't I don't know, it doesn't feel I get mad. I don't know. It's to no, your point. It's like I don't know what it is, but something about it just—it really it stops runs out working. Of steam. Yeah, I don't know because I wouldn't say it starts. Maybe it does kind of start grounded. I mean, that opening scene is very dark and very heavy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it does, then go ahead. Well, it's just, and then it just kind of gets sillier. Mm-hmm. As it goes, and then it becomes this kind of very James Bondy moment in the third act. It tries to pivot backwards, yeah. yeah. It, it gets super duper serious yeah. once once we kind of know what the plot is and you know what the stakes are. Yeah, it goes back to super duper serious, and I, I yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, and so I I I thought I was going to have more fun with this one, but I kind of walking away feeling pretty cold. Very good, very good. Um, well, what do I think about a movie that uses suicide as jumping off a high place as a joke and also drug use of a police officer on the force and also racial discrimination against uh, that and also uh, objectification of the bodies of sex workers and, uh, well, yeah, I don't like it very and, much at and all. And also a little bit too much of pearl clutching about uh, your friend's daughter doing sex work. Yeah. 
Uh, also, how much of a loose cannon is Mel Gibson? Uh, enough of a loose cannon that he's squeezed in a little homophobia and casual anti-Asian sentiment. And I don't necessarily know that those two things were the script. Yeah. <laughs> they might be. They, they might I, be. They might be. I, I don't think Mel Gibson's going to sue me because he doesn't know who I am. So I can say <laughs> those might be choices. Well, the next thing being um, post-war PTSD. Um, yeah, let's just use all this for jokes. Yeah, do I like that? No, I don't. Not very much at all. These Thank are you. all very serious things. These are all very, very serious things. And it's all played for yucks. And uh, just for something that's just moving a plot along that is not particularly plotty. What do we know about the guy that has the house with the other sex workers at it other than he shoots back for a minute? Uh, we just know that's where he—that's where the drugs came from. That's yeah. all we ever learned about. Well, and that. so, where are the other drugs going? Yeah, why? Question mark. Um, yeah. And so Shane Black is a good screenwriter, but not today. And uh, <laughs> well, there's a lot of drafts of the screenplay. Apparently, uh, well, fine. Um, well, and apparently, one of the ones well, I read, Donner's about, so. notably had a kind of not great relationship. Right? I mean, there's a lot usually of. Yeah, working issues with him, right? Well, and I know that they basically use none of his script for Lethal Weapon 2, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and the first draft of this sounds kind of bonkers in a real, like, first screenplay sort of way. Yeah, well, so with all of that, I'm just going to say, egads, um, that that this this should not have happened. Um, but that being said, uh, does Mel Gibson have charisma on screen? Yes. Does Danny Glover? Yes. Are the action scenes and the sort of retributive narrative of violence um, emotionally fulfilling in some ways? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I do love that little jujitsu fight scene that we have there at the end of the movie. It is... I love Gary Busey's big, toothy smile. Yeah. I like it when he calls himself Mr. Joshua. Yeah, I'm kind of there for it. I, I do love the bondness of our villain. I mean, that's all fine. Um, but all the rest of it goes... No, so much no, and so I'm I'm quite cool as well, dear friends, and uh, we'll talk more about that as the uh, show progresses. Um, with that, I guess we must move on to explaining the syllabus. Um, Arthur seems to be babying a small puppy, so I'm going to ask Dalton to explain what expanding the syllabus is all about. I will do my best. As Dustin has already let you know, this is a show where we talk about the movies you would never talk about in a film studies course. Uh, I could see somebody trying to teach Lethal Weapon. <clears throat> I wouldn't advise it, but here's what's going to happen next, is we're going to pretend we are teaching Lethal Weapon, and we're going to tell you what we would teach along with it, and how we would make the the case that there's academic work to be done on this text. Uh, and that's yeah, each of us has a, a, a little brief... Uh, argument to make about uh, how we would teach it. Yes, that is the punchline of the joke. Moving right along, Arthur, what is your syllabus looking like? Um, I would do the odd couple. Uh, nice. I think that's what I would talk about here. Is is instead? <laughs> it's not that segment, but okay. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that segment anymore. What are you talking about? I, I would just I would discuss that. I mean, the the core dynamic here is the that buddy cop odd couple dynamic, uh, and I would just trace that out through through history. I mean, it goes back to the vaudeville days, and so we would look at Abbott and Costello. We'd look at the Three Stooges. We'd look at Laurel and Hardy, and we'd look at the Marx Brothers yeah. and discuss them. And that idea of, of the straight man and the buffoon and how they play off of one another and how Donner and, and Black kind of parlay that into what I, you know, I think that is kind of where that tonal mishmash comes from. Obviously, the Three Stooges is being referenced right there, mm-hmm. um, but it does kind of trace his DNA back to those days. Uh, again, coming off of last week, we talk about It Happened One Night again, which is kind of the, the dawning of the screwball comedy where these dynamic pairings start to happen. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about... Uh, another couple of movies paired up together in an interesting way, and that's The Odd Couple, 
that we would have to talk about. Sure. Uh, Jack Lemmon and uh, Walter Matthau. Uh, and then we would talk about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from the next year. Um, and and kind of looking at this place and time of the new Hollywood and how that begins to play with some of these dynamics as well. Um, and even though we've kind of moved into a more, quote unquote, serious cinema in some ways and serious movies, that those traditional comedy archetypes are still at play. Uh, from there, we would talk about Midnight Cowboy. Uh, we'd talk about Hoffman and uh, John Voight and the weird dynamics there and this Texas boy and the, the city uh, rat and uh, how they play off of one another. Um, then we would talk about Midnight Run um, just because I think it does in many ways set a precedent for what the buddy comedy is and how those two characters can interact and engage and act as foils to one another to flesh out characteristics. Uh, from there, I want to talk about Thelma and Louise, uh, which we've done on the show, uh, which was great. Um, yeah. But you get some women in the mix, uh, which is not always seen, at least not in that kind of action suspense dynamic. Nah. Uh, so I think that would be kind of a pivotal point here. We would talk about Rush Hour just because it's the modern version, or at least in the late 90s, uh, it was the modern version of this movie. And then we're going to talk about, not that one, we're going to talk about Hot Fuzz. Uh, which gets to spoof and play with all of these tropes as they're established and talk about that idea of masculinity that's at the core of all of these, I think, buddy action movies. Yep. And when that does kind of get subverted with a movie like Thelma and Louise or The Heat, um, directed by Paul Feig with uh, Sandra Bullock and uh, Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. And so that's where I would take this, though, is just kind of tracing out that history of the buddy uh, idea and, and its roots in vaudeville and, and where it looks uh, at in modern modern times. Very cool, very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? What is your syllabus looking like? We're going straight to the belly of the beast, Dustin. We got to talk about the man, the problem, the Mel. The Mel. Uh, we're going to look at the suffering masculinity of Mel Gibson and how how dudes just can't catch a break in Mel's movies. Uh, the passion of the Murdoch. You, the per, exactly. The passion of the Riggs. You can't have anything nice in this world because the British will come and kill it from you. <laughs> so we'll be looking at his filmography, both uh, the works that he's done with for other directors as well as his work as a director, as well as his work outside of the silver screen, uh, being a huge piece of shit. Because uh, I, I think it's relevant. I, I think we do... He's one of those cases where you have to talk about the artist and the art and how those two things intersect because I think you see I think you see who the man is on screen. I think you really do. Uh, there's a really great article from a film textbook that I read a million years ago um, about ma- masculine bodies on screen and the ways in which... Oh, Richard Dyer again, <clears throat> yes. I don't think it was Dyer, actually. I think this one was a, a, a lady author, um, okay. and that's how I know it's not Dyer. Okay. Uh, but I can't remember the uh, title of the, the piece or the author, uh, unfortunately. But the, the argument is made uh, that the male body on screen is is made for suffering in action movies. So they look at Bruce Willis be, being kind of one of the key factors, right, uh, of, of this example. Uh, and Mel, is this is all over his filmography. From Mad Max to The Passion of the Christ, masculinity is suffering for Mel. Uh, being a dude is uh, taking pain onto your body for others. Uh, and in each of these movies, whether it's Lethal Weapon or Braveheart or The Patriot uh, or Mad Max, all of these sort of classic Mel movies, there is almost always a force that has stolen the family or is threatening to steal the family or both. Well, is threatening and then does inevitably steal a family. Uh, because so much of his filmography is about 
retributive violence. And mm-hmm. I, I, it is interesting that he does Hacksaw Ridge, you know, this movie about a pacifist. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. It is interesting that he is such a devout Catholic. And uh, I think that we have to look at his faith uh, and how that informs both the roles he chooses as well as the movies he's made. We have, obviously, we're going to talk about the most, one of the most successful indie films of all time, his weird little pet project uh, about gore and Aramaic. Uh, it's not a film that I like very much. I'll be honest with you, listener. Uh, Me neither. You're allowed to like it. It's it's okay if you do. I think it's responsible for a lot of bad theology. Uh, and I think that's what we get with Mel, is we, we get sort of this very suffering and penitent man, who, a, a guy who clearly knows he has problems, and yet uh, I, I think the world has, the history of his life has shown us that it doesn't seem like he's doing a great job of dealing with them because he just, you know, keeps doing goofy stuff and then having goofy's a nice way to put it too uh and then having people like um oh my god uh clarice starling who is played by jody Jody foster Foster. thank you he keeps having his friends jody foster come out and be like oh he's not that bad like what in the world Mm -hmm. why do people go back go to bat for this guy i don't get it there's something there is what i'm saying and I, i think we'll examine both action movies and sort of masculine archetypes and look at mel and what he has to tell us about those things. Like, we could look at signs, too. He's definitely done some off-the-beaten-path stuff. You know, the beaver, speaking of Jodie Foster. Um, there, There is... Yeah, you forgot about the beaver, didn't you? Everybody forgot about the beaver. I think Jodie Foster might have. Uh, who knows? I, I, it's a movie that I constantly forget about. But just... It's fun to remember that there's a movie where Mel Gibson puts a beaver puppet on his hand <laughs> and talks to his family through the puppet. That's a movie that came out, people. <laughs> That's just a movie that exists. Arthur. It's gonna... <laughs> I've killed Arthur, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man. Dustin, right. what, what, uh, what on earth could you possibly teach somebody using Lethal Weapon? I would teach a class that Arthur's going to teach, not me, um, which is a class on screenwriting. Uh, using Shane Black's screenplay here as an example of what not to do. Uh, using uh, Sousa and others' screenplay for McTiernan's film Die Hard as to what to do, and then looking at how sometimes Shane is more of a help than a hindrance when he does a punch-up with Predator, another McTiernan film. I think there's—I keep hearing conflicting reports about whether or not he actually did anything on that movie. Yeah, I don't know, and I—you know, I'm I'm disinterested in sort of the uh, textual criticism of that, Yeah, but I'm more interested in that's a movie that works in a different kind of way than— Die Hard works sure. in ways that uh, finally Lethal Weapon does not work. Because I'm thinking about just the action movie screenplay. So this would be a module within a course where you're taking a genre approach here. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have something like the literary adaptation, which would be another part of the course. Science fiction, uh, the bottle film, the siege film, sure. you know, those things together. But this would be the moment we talk about action cinema and looking at the sort of high point of the late 80s and early 90s for action films. And because I, they do work, generally speaking. And the sequels to the Lethal Weapons, they also work in, uh, in, in interesting ways. And so I would approach that in that direction. And again, arf, offer the uh, now dearly departed Arthur Gordon the opportunity. I'm so sorry I killed our friend. 
I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, well, there there were jokes. <laughs> like, and... Sometimes you say a thing and you realize there might be some value in it afterwards. <laughs> and then somebody's dead and you can't really do anything about that. You can't that. do anything about it at all. But uh, yeah, that's what I would do as a screenwriting course uh, with uh, this as a, a kind of a failed effort. It's uh, kind of a weird era, too. And maybe that's a good place for us to start as we do the next thing. Yeah, the next thing, which is coming up, which is us getting down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business. That's time. right. And that business is, as always, analysis. There are so many things we could talk about. But let's talk a little bit more about screenwriting because I do, now that Arthur has res- raised from the dead, because I've heard mm. that his hobby is resurrection. Yes. Um, yes. Let's think about this movie and its screenwriting. Basil Exposition, come to the fore and uh, tell us why this doesn't work, Arthur. It's that thing I alluded to earlier. It's every character trait and thematic thread, at least related to Mel Gibson's character, is called out in the script, especially early on by the psychologist Mm -hmm. at the uh, department. Who Character. no one apparently listens to. Yes. Gets two scenes, I think. Yeah, she uh, talks to the chief, and then she talks to on the phone to yeah, Murtaugh. Um, but it, it's a weird... It's just so on the nose with all of its kind of exposition that, like, I get it. Like, you don't have to show me... And, and it's that rule of show-don't-tell, right? Like, you Not one. show me... He's suicidal and off and a loose cannon, but you don't have to tell me and then show me and then tell me again. <laughs> and then once more to reinforce the idea, show me again. And then the, the first act of this movie is just them really, really leaning into the fact that Riggs is not fit for duty. Yeah. Right. And nobody takes this it man's serious. a danger. Even society. after Danny Glover realizes how dangerous it is. He's just like, eh, come over for dinner. We're going to investigate this mystery. Well, I'll fix you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We're just going to hang out on the boat and play some jokes on one another. I mean, a six pack of beer and a boat. I mean, that fixes everything, doesn't it? As traditionist has yep. showed us. Yes. That is the cure for most masculine issues. Yep. It's fucked up. I mean, especially the underlining it with, because you, you mentioned already after uh, Riggs, handcuffs himself to the jumper and throws him onto an airbag that apparently neither of them noticed being deployed. Uh, yes. Murtaugh... I think the joke is that Riggs knows. Well, probably. Yeah. I guess I, I guess I mean the jumper didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah. Riggs presumably knows. But anyway. Maybe. May, again, maybe. I mean, we don't... I mean, hard, guy, hard to say based on the first act of the movie. Has put a gun in his mouth. Well, and then and, tries to kill himself then, with Murtaugh's yeah, service Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Danny Glover. Assisted suicide. Yeah, he jumps. He throws his hand in there to stop the hammer. Like mm-hmm. that's the end of that scene, and never remarked upon again. And guess who's coming to dinner? Uh. Riggs. <laughs> oh, my old buddy Riggs. It does really make you think about uh, what if True Detective like really underlined how how depressed uh, uh, McConaughey's character was. Like it, it's just baffling. Again, as you said, Arthur, it feels like a parody of a, a thing that it's inventing. And I think the other issue with the script is that, and, and this may be part of Donner's, you know, and we don't know Donner's direction, studio intervention, involvement from Gibson, and you know, there are so many factors, and that's why you know we kind of throw that wrench into the auteur theory. But if we do look at this 
at least from a writing directing issue. I mean, the tonal inconsistencies, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. starts with a very heavy suicide moment and, and then just kind of, you know, goes more and more comedic from there. I mean, that opening scene and, and that moment with Riggs and his trailer with the gun are from a completely different movie. They're from a much darker, much more serious drama. And that's my understanding of the, the screenplay. Uh, I know Shane Black is kind of known as an action comedy guy, but apparently that's that's all his first screenplays. Much, much darker film. Yeah. And so I, I think those are kind of the issues here. And, and you know, uh, he, this is his first screenplay, right? Is his first? I think this is his maybe. first produced one, yeah. Um, and, and so I think there's just some of that raw roughness young youngness to it um but it's uh, you know those those kind of inconsistencies and how much of that came through from you know test audiences and you know oh they didn't laugh enough we need to get some more comedy you know we don't know those kind of factors um but it is just this weird mix mash of too much exposition with too many tonal inconsistencies that i think causes it to not find that lane. It, it, it can't stick in a lane. It, it tells us way more than it should. And it just kind of breaks some of those, I think, consistent, understood rules of, of screenwriting. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's move uh, gears a little bit here to let's talk about that opening scene and also the uh, can of worms that begins to open, which is the problem of the women in this film. Yeah, bully. Okay. Uh, yeah. Richard Donner's uh, directed by credit sure does come up at a weird time, if you're asking me. Yeah. Uh, which is right after uh, a nude female body uh, explodes a car. Uh via velocity right and that nude female body which is definitely gazed and ogled upon uh as we're coming into that i mean you know that open shirt is there for a particular titillating reason right it makes you wonder at least me so spoilers we're going to be talking about a shane black movie next week uh and that particular shane black movie opens with a moment that's really really similar to this and yet it, it actively is kind of remarking upon its its gaze right there's there's a young boy in the scene and it is dealing with the way that society teaches boys who become men to gaze right this scene's not doing any of that uh, and you can argue we'll, we'll talk about next week whether or not that film successfully in, engages with the gaze right this film is not doing anything other than being a little pervert mm-hmm. uh, just a nasty little boy um, which I look, I, it's fine for movies to be titillating sometimes. It's just, you know, it's, it's the history of how American films have been titillating. That's kind of the problem. Right. Especially the way in, in action movies, but even more in cop stories, the way cop stories treat the female body, because it is usually a dead object in cop stories, right? It is not a person that's imbued with life and character. It is an object that represents a loss of innocence. It is, it is very much the sort of, uh, gilded cage misogyny that mm-hmm. uh, i don't know man like i don't know what we're gonna do with it today uh, as far as unpacking but it's definitely all over the beginning of this movie and all over like the motivation we get for why murtaugh is so like invested in this is really all we get is he's got a young uh young a daughter who's a young woman too and that seems to really put a bee in his bonnet about the fact that his buddy's daughter ended up doing sex work before she she died yeah it's i don't know it's moralizing in a weird way that I don't know, it feels like some guy trying to guess what a dad worries about, truly. It doesn't, even, it, I don't know, it tries to do something with Murtaugh, um, 
you know, having a real emotional reaction to the well, death the, of his friend's daughter. Well, but that in the video, right? And that's the, the scene like, that I'm the talking about. The sadness there of watching it. Yeah. It tries to do something with it, but again, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel real to me. It feels right. like an invention of, of a screenplay. And there's also the moment, so with Murtaugh, there's an interesting, you know, his his daughter comes out to show off her New Year's Eve dress. Mm-hmm. And oh, she's a heartbreaker, yeah, yeah. And that response is different than I think what most movies at this time would have done, where he would have, no, you can't go out in that dress, yeah, you know. And his response there is feels a little more that feels modern, real. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I well, mean, his... he's he's apprehensive, but he's not going to shame her, call her out, yeah, you know, forbid her. He's also being super cool about the fact that she smoked weed in the house, which is not something you expect yeah. out of a cop dad, right? Yeah. Right? Like he is, he seems to be a pretty relaxed father. Lou, you're a cop. <laughs> Dad. <laughs> Dad cop. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, right? Like, he, there's just, there's an inconsistency to the way he's written. Right. For me. Yeah. I think, yeah. Well, uh, there, so there's that moment. Now let's talk about our psychologist who comes over off overwhelmingly shrill. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah she, her she concerns. She just doesn't want uh, Riggs to be out having a good time. And, uh, but he's clearly going to be, you know, it's all going to work out in the end, right? It's a good idea that he was on the force and it was a good idea that he was on the street. Uh, and so she comes off as um, a crying wolf, I guess. I mean, is, is that your is that your reading of the film as well? No, that 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 Mur- is not is not um, redeemed. That Riggs is there and saves Murtaugh's life, and like you need that loose cannon there, and she should just kind of chill out a little bit. I mean, I, I don't read that character that way. Oh, okay. Well, I, I mean, mean, I don't read the movie that way either. Because it ejects her before it has. I mean, I've totally forgot about that character. Yeah. If I'm being honest, because it does fully eject her. So I think your I argument mean, holds. It, I don't know what it says about that character, but as far as what the movie has to say, yeah, it says, well, no, 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 you don't need to worry about what <laughs> some broad says. Look at these two guys having a good time. He invited them over for Christmas dinner. They're buds now. Yeah. Don't worry about it. The friendship will save everything. And I don't know that he even really has that true redemptive moment. He already knows his reason for it is the work. I mean, that's mm. what he tells Murtaugh early yeah. on. So I don't think that growth is there for that character either by the end. Yeah. I, I don't know that anything gets resolved thematically for the characters. I guess right. is where I'm. Yeah, which again goes back to issues with the screen, the right? ejection of her. Yeah, which was speaking of ejection, let's talk about refrigeration in Victoria. Sure, sure. Right. Well, I mean, just uh, that's that that's that's our purpose. That's kind of what I was thinking. When which I mentioned. fits right next to the daughter, who is simply yeah. the damsel in distress to be rescued now. Yeah, that's kind of. I was thinking about the twin roles of like the the dead daughter who we see die and the the always dead off screen wife. Right, like the sort of two roles that women fulfill in cop stuff mm-hmm. often, uh, which is. I don't know, a, a bug, a feature, not a bug. Like, that's just how they're made a lot of the time. And, you know, I, sometimes it bothers me less, and sometimes it bothers bothers me more, and I think that has a lot to do with, like, how successful the work in question is is dealing with these tropes, right? And I don't think this movie is very successful at all, because it's not really interested in interrogating anything. No. Which uh, brings us to the final woman, which is Trish, the wife of uh, Murtaugh, mm-hmm. who is a strong woman, I think, uh, as a character, I, I, I think there's definitely a strength to that character, but Terrible she's cook. played she's played for last because she's just bad cook, and that's just the whole movie is like I am not eating this inedible food by myself, and uh, how much of a jerk he is to his wife it seems, and that's just played for yucks. This movie is weird. I think the only thing this film gets right is that family dynamic. Yeah, those family scenes feel earnest, yeah, and, and lived in. You know, the kind of the chaos of a, people getting ready in the morning or. 
Yeah. Hugs and kisses and birthday cakes while in the tub, though? That was a little weird. It was the 80s. I don't know. I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I lived through the 80s. Really? I, yeah, I don't yeah, know about know. that one. Hey, look, I don't, I don't know about that one. Uh, yeah. Your guess is as good as mine. My thought, bubble bath. As a bubble bath guy, my first thought, never first thing in the morning. What? Yeah. Bubble bath in the morning? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> That's not how you start a day. That's how you end a day. That's just one man's opinion, though. Uh, far be it for me to tell Danny Glover when to take a bubble bath. I'm, I'm, I'm only one man. Uh, yeah, doesn't really do anything with any of those characters. I guess the, the fourth female in question is... Uh, Dixie? No, uh, oh. I guess Dixie. Uh, the fifth, then, being... Uh, what's Murtaugh's daughter's name? Oh, my God. Rihanna? Rihanna. Rihanna. thank you. Tracy Wolf. Uh, yeah, I don't know, like... Tracy Wolf is just there to be kidnapped for a while. It's it's it sucks. It's it's bad stuff all the way down as far as uh, gender goes in this movie. And almost, I mean, at that dinner, it almost feels like they're going to set her up. I mean, she's obviously thinks Riggs is cute. He's not doing anything about it. No, he's not. But being it, a creep. It, there are a few points where that conversation feels like it should happen between Murtaugh and Riggs, and it does at the end, right? It's kind of a joke. Touch yeah. my daughter, I'll kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, does tease him but a they bit. kind of introduce that conflict early on, but then never do anything with it. Which is probably good. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I don't know what I, I don't Ugh. know what this movie would have done. But yeah. you're right. It is. Well, sort of... I'm just saying. I, I expected that line earlier. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, when they're on the boat or something. I guess it kind of makes sense as a. Oh, now they're actually friends because they're yeah. joking about this thing that Murtaugh wouldn't joke about. No. Yeah, I don't know. Um. I, I, I want to point out just a bit of headcanon. Sure. From no. I've only I haven't seen this movie in twenty years. Oh wow. Okay. And so um, you're going to bust Dixie. There's another uh, four letter word that has a U as its middle vowel. Sure. That I heard. Ah. That they were going to. Ah. That the, the, the kids thought that that they were going. When to, you saw this movie twenty saw, years ago. Yes. That they were going to visit Dixie. Ah. For, for other purposes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As they said, coffee and a little conversation. Like, yeah, that's that. The, the kids all know what she does, and yeah, gotcha. And, yeah. and that's what I thought was the whole thing. There. That's a very funny head cannon. Yeah, it, I'm glad you've been able to clear that up now. Yes, now, yeah. But uh, it's funnier that the kids would be chanting that. <laughs> are those the same kids that uh, they talk to you later? Yeah, it yeah. is the same kids. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because mm-hmm. um, that's who they get the the clue from. Yeah, right. Uh, there's also an exploded house in next week's movie. It's weird. It's just weird copy paste stuff a couple of times in the screenplay. Uh, the Metal Gear Solid fan in me, of course, loves that the bad guys are mercenaries. Mm-hmm. I just love it. I love Gary Busey as this like friggin' special ops boogeyman. Uh, I love that the the lead heroin dealer is also like a general or some shit. That's mm-hmm. good. I think yeah. that's fun. I think it's cool when mercs are your bad guys. It's a super effective movie bad guy. That way, that you you've got built in threat, right? And yeah, built, yeah built... they're super scary, and they'll do anything for money, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's probably one thematic thing this thing does right is war messed people up. Yeah, war's bad for you. Vietnam right, messed right. all these guys up <laughs> Mel in the Gip- military Mel- complex. 30-year-old Mel Gibson playing a nom vet is uh, so which funny. Which is laughable. I yeah. think the character's supposed to be in his late 30s, but still, like he even says like 19. Like, there are no 19-year-old fucking wet work special ops dudes in Vietnam. Are you no. kidding me? But again, this is some dumb, like, Whatever. I'm a nerd, so of course that bothers me. Um, who cares? It's yeah. just a movie. But it is, it just feels weird. That's, I will say though, he doesn't look 30. He does look about 35. Yeah, he does play a little older. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, drinking will do that to your face. But uh, he does play older, which works. I don't know that uh, Danny Glover plays that much older. I don't think he plays as 50. No. Uh, we were joking about the mustache a- adding some years. 
I don't know that it necessarily does, though. Uh, age is just kind of a sliding scale in this movie, mm-hmm. which is weird. Again, it's we're, look, we're scraping the barrel of things to talk about because it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um, I do love the Free South Africa um, bumper sticker that's on the on fridge. fridge. Yeah. yeah so, which is yeah. going to lead us to part two. Yeah. I, I, it really makes me wonder if somebody was sitting down to watch uh, the, the first movie so they could figure out what the second movie was going to be about and saw that. But, oh, shit. There we go. <laughs> that's our plot. Krugerrands. Got it. Love it. Uh, we talked a little bit about, and probably some more in this marathon, but last week we talked a little bit about masculine friendship, uh, mm-hmm. and we've already kind of mentioned it uh, loosely uh, this week with the boat and the six-pack. Is there anything else that this movie has to tell us about masculine friendship other than, I guess, not talking about problems being how you talk about problems? Yes. Yeah? I mean, no. I mean... That's about that's all it tells it, us. Yeah. Yes, Because we get... They don't ever talk about Riggs' uh, suicidal ideation again after he... Uh, Murtaugh saves him from death, from certain death. It's never mentioned again, not even once. I guess they kind of mention, like... Uh, no, I, they really don't. Even even when it's like he's ready to go cowboy to defend Murtaugh's family, we're not really engaging with the fact that the reason he's willing to do it is because he doesn't care if he dies. Right. <laughs> like, there's no there's no dealing with that. There's no dealing with how the police force is uh, engaging with them going cowboy on this drug cartel either, which is sort of a weird call to me. Yeah, I, I take full responsibility. We can just let this fight go on. Like, this is stupid. Yeah. They went to a whole, like, they've been kidnapped. They went to a whole kidnapping exchange handoff where there was a sniper battle and a helicopter what a weird movie yeah what a bizarre film and maybe that is that's where we gotta leave it because it i'm trying to i've been trying to figure out over the last couple of days like why is midnight run so much more successful than lethal weapon you know it's this movie comes out a year later It, it is still very much a buddy cop movie and yet is it's totally its own thing separate from lethal weapon i feel like but mm-hmm. there is some shared dna mm-hmm. is there anything in particular that midnight run does that makes it more successful is it just tonal consistency yeah i was gonna say it's consistent yeah thematically yeah. it's consistent characters it's consistent the mat <clears throat> narrowly it's, i mean yeah I, I think just across the board it's more consistent mm-hmm. you know you, we, we've already alluded to this you just pointed out the reason it doesn't feel like there's any payoff or retribution for Riggs' character is because it just gets dropped. Yeah. It feels like at a certain point in this movie, everything that it's been building to about his suicidal ideations and all this you know, threat between him and Murtaugh and, and that dynamic, I mean, that scene in that empty building after the the jump with the jumper mm-hmm. is very heavy. Step- Sorry. <clears throat> yeah. It just feels like everything kind of after that is so tonally different. It becomes this James Bond movie almost with Mr. Joshua and and where that all takes it. And it, I don't know. I, I think that the back half is just so forgettable. And I think Midnight Run, Run is just so consistent throughout that the relationship between these two is ever-evolving. It, it, it kind of follows those screwball comedy rom-com tropes of the falling out, the get-back-together but it does so in a way that is truly consistent, I think, and true to those characters and true to the world and true to the story in a way that I don't know that this movie knows what world it's in or how mm-hmm. to build out mm-hmm. that world. Yeah. And I, I think our, our actors give us a lot, you know, it, it is surprising how good they are mm-hmm. considering how inconsistent the characters are on screen. You know, I, I, I buy 
clever as the family man. I buy Gibson as a loose cannon, and uh, they both equip themselves well, but I think that's, that's a very good point, Arthur. Um, let's run to a verdict, then. You think it's time? I think it's time. All right, I mean, let's do we it. We said what we need to say. What do we say? Shelf or trash? Go, Arthur. Uh, yeah, I'm going to put it in the trash. I, I, I'm kind of surprised. I you know, Last time I watched this, I felt a little warmer on it, but this time around, it's just cold, and I, I don't know that you need to see Lethal Weapon. All right, what do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I'm with Arthur. Uh, wow, I... I don't know. I, I've been trying to think how long ago it's been since I watched this because it's not been that long, mm-hmm. but it feels like a void in my mind trying to like pin down when I rewatched this last. So yeah, it's somehow despite its its legs as a franchise starter, and you know, there's a, a fifth one incoming. Uh, they're threatening with us. <laughs> they're gonna make it. They're, they're threatening us with the Gibson. Yeah, they're they're gonna do it. But yeah, I don't know. I think you can uh, skip the rewatch on this one, folks. You don't you don't need to revisit this movie. And if you've never gotten around to it. No, you're fine. There's way better buddy movies. I am also going to say trash. Start with the sequels if you want Lethal Weapon in you, and yeah. uh, just avoid this one. Pesci adds a lot. Yeah, as like sort of a lightning rod character. Yeah, like, and I think it's probably because those sequels do tap into that comedy mm-hmm. aspect, slapstick aspect of these. They go way funnier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Joe Pesci's got like a whole monologue about how they they mess up the drive through. Like, yeah, that's yeah. just that's that's kind of the, the stakes of those sequels. And then we get Gone Fishing with him and Danny Glover. That's Later right, they're in the both 90s. in Confession. Yeah, they're the, the leads. Wow. I haven't seen that. I've never seen it either. It's just like a weird movie that, to think about. We know it's there. Yeah. Kind of that posely the weapon, they were friends type of a movie that they did. That's so fun. All right, well, there Cruisers is long. maybe more conversation to be had, um, but we're going to need your help there, listener, to have that. Um, Arthur, can you tell us how that can take place? Uh, yeah, you can uh, find us on socials media. Um, you can head over to Facebook and like our page. You can go to Twitter and find us at Good Trash Media. We are try to share content over there, film articles, film reviews, funny memes, uh, friends of the show, The Praise Down, uh, Bad Girls Die First, uh, The Will of Randy. Uh, so we're, we're always sharing content over there or trying our best to. Um, and we try to avoid the negativity that is on Twitter as well. Um, so just keep your mental health in check if, if you choose to go that route. Yeah, um, you know what you're not going to see? Us arguing with somebody about whether or not Eternals is good or bad. Yeah. We don't care. We don't. You, you will see us posting, uh, I don't know, Robert Pattinson talking about how he doesn't know how to cook. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, we will. <laughs> uh, heck yeah, we will. Um, you can always send us long-form content if you think we butchered our, our analysis of Lethal Weapon and uh, email us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. As always, rate, review, like, subscribe, yada, yada, yada. Uh, if you want me to send you content curated DVDs or Blu-rays, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash GTM, and I will uh, send those to you if you pay me enough money. He's good uh, at it. He that's it. That's that's social media corner with Arthur. Thank you, Arthur. Um, hey, um, let's do another movie. Uh, yeah, I'm right back here. I'm Arthur again. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to keep this buddy marathon moving along. Uh, as Shane Black moves from pin to director's chair, and we discuss the chaotic and gritty buddy exploits of The Nice Guys. I th- I've look, never seen it. I think, really? I think you'll have a better time than you had with Lethal Weapon, I suspect. I hope so. I mean, it can't get much worse. So there's That's that. Fair. So there you go, dear listener. It can't get much worse. Uh, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.